today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at the concept of morality. This is the first of three episodes, each one looking at something unique in the moral life. First, we'll need to see if there is such a thing as objective morality. Is it the same for all people across all cultures? If there is this morality, how are we supposed to know what it is? And who is in charge of enforcing those rules? You can find notes to all these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Ian Palco for episode number 32 of the Apologetic series here on the SSPX podcast. And I don't, I, just for you, I brought the cup back. So. Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. No problem at all. And I also needed some coffee. So that was a yeah, good perfect. combo. Perfect. Well, welcome back to our apologetic series. And Father Palco, great to have you back again. How, how, how have you been? Well, now that summer is nearing an end and all the leaves are changing here, it's, it's, I'm actually, I, I'm good, but I've had to put on a jacket now. It's just the first since, um, I guess the last, the first episode we recorded was, was back over at winter time when it was in, I was in New Zealand, came over here, summer there, winter here. I've, I've broke it out. I've now broken it out again. So I guess we're, yeah, we're, we're getting, all, all full circle. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and I have a coffee and so everything is, Everything is good. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we are, we are uh, amped up and ready. And this episode, we are talking about um, the moral life. So how does uh, broadly, yes, I mean, just from logic, sorry, I've got some kids yelling out there. Shoot. Can you hear that? <laughs> I can't hear anything. No. Oh, you can't? Oh, okay. No. Um, broadly, we all know that, that just from logic that we should live a moral life. Um, but in terms of apologetics, how do, how does the moral life fit into our study of apologetics here? I know that's a very broad question, but just kind of starting from there and then kind of distilling down father. Right. So you know, morality ends up becoming sort of, I, w- I would say maybe secondary to a lot of the things that we're, we start talking about in apologetics. Um, in a broad way, I guess we can look at apologetics as trying to do three things. Um, I've in classes before, um, yeah, Pilford, uh, yeah, I've, I've just stolen it straight from Father Thiemann, who you've had on here before, because he's done a very good job of, of laying it out. He calls it the apologetic bridge, and maybe he's taken it from somewhere too. But this idea where you have two, uh, I guess you could say, sides of this bridge, and apologetics is what's meant to carry you over. On the one side, you do the first work of apologetics, the naturally knowable truths. We're using natural reason alone. We're trying to establish that God exists, the soul exists, God's attributes. Um, we can know revelation as the previous um, uh, podcast that we've done together have been on miracles, the possibility of miracles. We can know about these things. We can be certain about these things. Um, and when we start going over the bridge, and in a certain sense, this is where that morality is going to enter in. Um, these are the possibility and the reasonableness of Christian doctrines. Some of what we'll talk about with morality stands in that naturally noble truths part. Some of it on this, the church teaches it this way, that seems reasonable. And so 
we, now we're just going to show it is reasonable. And then once you've crossed into the second part or the second pillar over there on the edge, we have the truths of faith. Now you have to actually believe those for them to be certain because it relies on revelation. And that's going to be the Catholic Church's particular claims on things. And so in a certain sense, what we're doing throughout apologetics, we're rejecting atheism, polytheism, pantheism. We're trying to establish monotheism. In that, we're also establishing the philosophical truths, like some of the first principles we'll talk about there. And in the moral life, we can talk about that as well. Then we're going to reject non-Christian monotheism, Judaism, Islam, and sort of the semi-polytheism of like a Mormonism. I think that we're going to talk about that a lot later along in the, in the series. Um, or Hinduism, some forms think of a supreme God, but all kinds of other you know, God-like figures underneath of that. And then finally, we'll reject non-Catholic Christianity. None of that specifically touches on morals. Um, but like we said back in that episode on miracles in the New Testament, one of the ways that we try to demonstrate uh, the, the believability of the Catholic Church being a divine institution and is this miracle, as it were, of people coming to it in droves early along, despite the fact that the morality that the Christian church teaches was not at all commensurate with what you would have in uh, a pagan idea of things. And yet people came over. It, this restricted them, this new morality that Christianity was teaching, it restricted them. And yet many came after reflection to accept this contrary morality we, we looked at that as a moral miracle, not because we're talking about morality, but a moral miracle. And that morality, of course, then is going to obviously play a very important role. Secondary, because we're needing to establish the doctrines first, but the morality flows very quickly from those doctrines. And so even in apologetical realm, a lot of times people are going to, say, object to the church, not because of the doctrines she teaches, but because of the morality that she teaches as well. Right. So, so what we're trying to do is again, with just, if I can kind of co coalesce or, or summarize what you've just been saying, we're, yeah. we're looking at, at doctrine and seeing how that fits into the morality. And this is that bridge that you're talking about. In, in um, a certain, yeah, in a certain way, that's the case, but also even if we just step away from the doctrines that we're trying to establish with apologetics, a lot of the times people's objections to the doctrines really are sourced in their objections to the morality um, that the church teaches or that the church teaches because it is moral that way. And a lot of the times they will object to the church, not because they have some intellectual objection to the doctrines, not that they've reasoned themselves in some dispassionate manner to accept atheism, but rather they don't want to live like the church wants them to live. And as a result of that, it's a lot easier to just say, I'll leave away these, I'll leave aside these doctrines. I will say they're false because I want to behave this way. I'd say that's also okay. the case for Catholics who leave the church in a lot of cases. Being um, a boys' school principal and uh, a dean of discipline, sometimes you'll have young men who come in and say, Father, I'm, I'm having a real problem. I'm having doubts about my faith. And sort of the, the trope answer would be, well, what's her name? <laughs> because oftentimes that happens, right? We, we don't yeah. want to behave a particular way. And it's a lot easier to throw away the foundation for why, why that is rather than it is to go, right, well, I want to behave in a way that I shouldn't behave. And 
then maybe I should try to figure out how to behave that way. Or we could go into the medieval papacy too. And like, well, maybe, or, you know, maybe we actually just behave badly and we keep the doctrine as well. I'm not sure that's a good idea, but, um, right. But I think well, that's, but, but, but it's that, it's that cognitive dissonance of, yeah. of if, if I know what is true and I, and I don't want to act by what is true, then something's got to give, I've either got to stop doing what I know is wrong, or I've got to just change my mindset and yeah. start living a lie. It's exactly. One of two. Yeah. And, and so you'll have those people who, you know, they were really awful, morally speaking, even popes in the past, but at the same point in time, they never left the doctrine. It's so it's an odd situation. And I know the politic series really isn't about the crisis in the church, but we're in an odd situation, at least until more recently, where you had at least seemingly good popes, morally speaking, and yet not doctrinally speaking. And now you sort of have the, the, the synthesis of that, perhaps uh, we'll get into talking about that in a future episode here on the more specific sure. aspects of, of the, of the church's teaching. Um, but yeah, you, you have this cognitive distance and either you're going to just accept it or which is the more modern way of doing things. You just throw away one thing so you can at least seem to hold um, a view that doesn't really agree with the church's teaching. Um, so you throw the church's teaching away. And, and so that's, in a certain sense, that's where the apologetic aspect comes in. Of course, we can, we can explain some of these things, and we will hopefully in, in these episodes, but um, we, we don't want to, if we're going to accept logically um, the apologetic arguments that we've been making, then we're also going to have to, in a certain sense, remove people or show them that you can dispassionately look at these things, and you may have to reorient yourself towards the natural law, for instance, if we're really going to, um, if we're going to understand the doctrines as well as the morality that, that kind of goes with them. So, so basically right now where we are in terms of, uh, like you said, this cognitive dissonance and people trying to understand, you know, trying to, you know, have it both ways, be Catholic, but yet also do what they want to do. It's, it's very similar to the, the pagan situation, the pagan world in the past where people were just kind of doing whatever they wanted to do at any given time. Right. Sort of. I I think so. I think you can make a comparison that the morality, at least the objections thereof that we find from the world today to Catholic morality looks a lot like that situation that again, we talked about with people when people were living in a pagan world and they're trying to come and they're, they're considering Catholicism, which is teaching something which seemingly is an antithesis to what they believe, at least on the morals. You know, it's different than, in a certain sense, the ages of faith, Christendom, back through even, you know, 50 years ago, and maybe even closer to that, where the Catholic Christian moral code was more or less accepted. I mean, even amongst Protestants, okay, you have the difficulties with with contraception and the Protestants in the 1930s and changing their ideas and divorce and remarriage. And we, but in a general sense, a lot of those things were were accepted to be wrong, and they, that was just the foundation of most of Western society. Now we're, we're seeing a sort of return to that neo paganism. There, I think that actually that ends up raising some important questions because if we see this kind of arc that goes through, um, are in returning to that, are we actually did we just have a little phase here? Was it like a 2000 year old phase or year long phase where we've actually gone sort of full circle back? Um, is is it really that the Catholic Christian morality is uh, 
based on objective standards or not? I think that's one of the questions we'll, we'll probably look at in this episode in particular. Um, or is it just some arbitrary set of standards that, that were made up? Um, and those replace pagan norms. And maybe the morality is just then subjective. And Christian norms were in vogue for that time. And now they've gone out of vogue. Um, we're going to look, obviously, in, in the Catholic sense to establish some kind of objective standards here. So we're going to reject that. But it would it be a pretty serious blow to Catholic morality and apologetics if instead of an objective standard, these are just subjective and we're just going through this arc here. Um, right. So, so how, how do we, I guess the next question is how do we define what morality is? Where, where is our, where does morality come from? Is it, like you said, it, it has to be some objective reality. It can't just be subjective because otherwise then there is no morality, right? Yeah, effectively, there is a morality. And what's, what's interesting is if you, if you look at various sort of modern, modern authors on this and people who pride themselves in thinking that they know a lot, um, they'll, they'll try to go to a moral nihilism or um, a relativism. Um, there's this new school, not very popular, that is, that is trying to establish a morality, that there are no value judgments whatsoever anywhere. Um, but in a certain sense, that would be like saying that there is no objective truth, right? It sounds great, in sort of a philosophy class or in, you know, at a university, but, but in the end that doesn't work real well. You can't do science. You can't know anything. And on the moral level, the first moral axiom is going to be do good, avoid evil. And if there's not an objective standard for that, and we can just set whatever we want, there's not much of a moral axiom anymore there. It, it becomes very irrational. Um, if there's no good to be sought or evil to be avoided, there's no rules for behavior you can't even really have preferences because you can't really even know anything. Is this good? Is this bad? Oh, it, it, it isn't either. Well, do I avoid it? Do I do it? Or is it completely neutral? Um, so essentially what we're going to say with morality here or ethics, um, this study is we're asking questions about what's the standard? How do we need to look at our actions or human actions? How are we going to, come up with a general guide so that we can see that our actions that are freely willed end up, um, end up according to whatever law or objective standard this is. So what, where do we, where do we then find our standards of morality? Is it, does it come from God? Does it come from other people? Is it something that is just kind of baked into us? Where, where do we get our standards of morality? So, or is it kind of all the above? Uh, well, I think you could find that there is a combination of those, and it kind of depends on how you look at them. But we could say that they're either going to be objective or subjective. They're going to come from some source outside of ourselves. That could either be a transcendental moral law. So transcendental, not just some big $10 word I threw in there to sound smart, but it transcends. It goes above. It goes above nature, or it goes at least above us. So it's some transcendental moral law that applies to everybody, or it's some societal demand, which is kind of the same thing on some level. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, uh, flesh that out a bit. Or there's something innate in us. So those are the objective standards. It's, it's innate within us, and we all have it. 
or society demands this thing, or there's some transcendental moral law that over that is over all of us there. That's the objective standards. The subjective standards is just, well, it's my own value judgment. I decide this thing. In a certain sense, that's sort of that's saying that morality is there is no morality. I get to decide what it is. Um, okay. But it, in order to actually look at well, a good way of looking at this, maybe is think of it this way. A common argument is going the, against the subjective morality is really a theistic argument. It, it's we have to go back in a certain sense that God exists. This transcendental moral law from him exists. But other people, if they're going to try to uphold that same idea, come up with some kind of secular morality, are going to try to find some other thing that 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 can transcend everything in a certain sense. So we're going to just set aside subjectivity for a second here. Let's look at those objective standards. So they're either going to come from above us, and that's a supernatural standard. They're going to be at our level, something like society or other people around us, or there's something innate in us. Um, we could say uh, we're not going to accept the the, the doctrine uh, or the, the the doctrine of or the, the scientific arguments for it, and it's an entirely different question. But let's say for those scientists out there who who accept evolution, right? Let's say there's some evolutionary basis for this, and you'll find some who do this. It's not too many, but since we're talking in a certain sense, both the Catholics who might be watching this, but also making an argument in an apologetic manner, let's at least leave aside the truth or falsity of evolution and just assume it's true for a moment. Okay. So let's start at that lowest level. There's something innate in us. I think one of the ways to argue against this, and I've heard a few other people do this before, is I think the problem you run into here is guilt, the sense of guilt. When we do certain things, we feel guilty about them. You know, um, mm -hmm. And if you're going to try in some way to escape or, or to, to make some kind of um, understanding of this guilt without God there, you're going to have to say, well, there, there's something there, something inside of me, something from society around or something above. Um, well, on that lowest level, if it comes from some kind of natural standards that we evolved with here, um, it, how does it make sense? How does guilt help us to survive as a species or reproduce? Um, it doesn't seem to make any any sense there, except if it's then to help us be a part of society. Society would otherwise kick us out. And then, of course, if you're not around other people, you can't reproduce, you won't survive very well. But that's just societal norms. So in a certain sense, it's just it's a scientist who an atheistic scientist who would make this claim. And then he would be saying in a certain sense, well, I'm just going to say evolution instead of societal norms. But it's really just societal norms. So we'll kick it off to talking about society. Okay. What if it's not about society then? Well, if we're rational and we understand that somehow biology has wired us this way, yet we're rational, we can think, we can actually overcome that. So effectively, we're saying there's no standard at all anyway, even if there was at some point in time. Um, and guilt that causes shame isn't experienced as some kind of utilitarian um, way of surviving or growing. So even an atheistic evolutionary argument for some kind of objective standard just simply doesn't work. Um, you're always going to eventually end up with some kind of societal standard or some supernatural standard. So we could ask the question, is there actually anything innate in us? 
And we're going to say there is, but it's not due to some natural development. It's actually due to our creation. And that's what we're going to call the natural law engraved in our hearts. But it's actually not something that's innate in the sense that it developed. It's the divine law, but just how God has imprinted it on our hearts. So we have this, we have this innate law that is, that is imprinted on us. And that's what we call the, the, the natural law, yeah. the, the divine law. And, that, and I think that's a good way of putting it though. I, I'd like to sort of flesh that out in, in, after we've maybe talked about some of the other possible, um, the other possible sources of this objective morality, but I'm not, that's a good way of thinking about it. And oftentimes it is the way we think about it. I'm not sure it's the most useful when it comes to morality, because when we say law, we tend to think rules. And that's maybe oh, not yeah. the best way of looking at morality, especially from an apologetic standpoint, because sometimes when we think law and rules, we end up going, okay, where's the code that I need to behave by? And, and I just do that. Um, and mm -hmm. that's, I, I think that's one way of acting, but it's not the best way of acting. And we'll see as we go through, I think, when we talk about the natural law a bit more there. But okay. if it's but if it's not from if there is this innate sense and it comes from actually from God, it's really a supernatural above us type thing. Whereas I, I, there is that middle ground that we we probably ought to mention here, and that's society. Some people will argue that um, in fact morality comes from society around us, and of course there's certainly an aspect of that. Right? We said before that you know for a long time, Catholic Christian morality was more or less the norm throughout society. And so, you know, you did something bad and you were sort of castigated for it. And so there is a societal element in there, just as there is this innate element in there, but that's not where the standard comes from, right? You have the scarlet letter, right? There is some sense that, that you're being punished by society for something that affects society, right? The, the, the bearing of a child outside of wedlock is impact society. It's why marriage was favored. Um, but in a universe without God, society is just a collection of individuals, right? It, it, it isn't created by anything. It isn't endowed with some kind of force. It's maybe you could argue there's some societal contract there, this natural law, societal contract from, from the enlightenment philosophers that creates this society. But how do they say it was created? They say we gave up some of our rights and we gave them over to society. So basically, a society is just a collection of individuals. It's not in any way really higher than us if God didn't create it. And if that's the problem uh, or that's the situation, the problem runs with this argument that morality comes from society rather than than from God or from a transcendental, supernatural um, moral code that is given to us. On this horizontal level, there's no fixed standards either. I mean, why... Why should you have any kind of say over how I behave and aren't you just an, another individual and isn't society just a group of other individuals? And so how does a group of individuals create a rule for me to behave when no one else can do that, at least on that horizontal level? And that's where I would say when we've gone through all of these, it seems like even if there's aspects of, of, of the below part of the horizontal part, we're still running into this situation where we need something, a supernatural source for that. And obviously that's going to be that there is a God and that the sources come from there. Just to follow up on that a little bit, could you say that, that there's a difference between morality and like mores in terms of society is, is defining 
mores about how how things are are appropriate for a given society or a given culture and that's a different sort of thing than morality am i totally going off off the rails here and going down a different rabbit hole that you don't want to go to but no no i i think you actually have something there's something to that because they are different um i think they, they they pair up right so you're going to have certain things that in certain societies look a little bit off to other societies and I think um, we, we could just step, step towards, actually, I'll, I'll plug right now an article that is coming out in the uh, November, December Angelus, because, you know, we, we can do that, written by yours truly um, about New Zealand and in a certain sense, the failure, as it were, of the mission down there, not our mission, um, but the, the, the Catholicizing of the place, the mission of Bishop Pompalier. And one of the things at least one of the theories that I have about why it didn't work out so well is you had a clash of cultures. Uh, a, the, the Mahdi, who are the, the indigenous there, more or less were converting en masse when Bishop Pampali was there. And then all of a sudden it just falls apart, right? Why? You have the sort of continental and Irish Catholicism and you have this Mahdi Catholicism and they're not really, they're not similar. The, the, the the beliefs obviously are they're Catholics, but the the attitude towards what had developed in this Polynesian culture was very different. I mean, they believed the same kinds of things, they behaved the same, they had the same kind of morality. But you know, an Irishman who sees a a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary with a full facial tattoo was horrified by that, and yet that was for the Mahdi a very beautiful and and meaningful right. thing, and so already there, you see that there's a difference between the morals. And then you see there's, there's also these societal norms or mores, you could say, and, and they're, they're going to be informed by each other. Uh, but in the case of societal mores, I think you're going to have those where different cultures, completely Catholic and, and upstanding cultures can very much differ on these kinds of things. Think, things that you would find in a, in a Eastern Catholicism will be somewhat offensive to somebody in Western Catholicism, for instance. Right? And as a result of that, it's not, a, it's not on the level of morality, except to say that we need to practice virtue. And maybe the way of practicing virtue is not to denigrate or look down upon what is a Catholic culture in another way that we don't really understand. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, just from like a, even a liturgical standpoint, you look at some of the uh, Coptic Christian uh, liturgies, and it yeah. looks it looks. I, I, I'm not trying to denigrate it, but but to a Roman Catholic Latin yeah. uh, person, it looks insane. Yeah, but it's like, but it's there's a beauty to it. We just don't understand it. We don't right. get it. Well, I mean, and, and I remember somebody in uh, an Eastern Catholic once telling me that like, um, they, they have this church and it had pews in it. And it was it made no sense to have pews in it for, for them because people are just walking around doing this thing. Or um, I remember uh, one of the teachers in New Zealand went to the Holy Land and um, it was, was there for Easter and went to a Latin mass at, at an altar in there. But you were cycled through like you were standing up holding your missile in here, and then you were not coming back to the same spot and there were no pews and you were just moving. It was, it was seemingly very disordered and yet that was normal and it, mm-hmm. people didn't feel distracted or disordered. Um, 
it is, I think most American Catholics or at least traditional Catholics would, would be completely out of sorts in that kind of a place. I yeah. didn't attend mass. I was so distracted. And yet, you know, there is a kind of beauty to it. At the same yeah. point in time, there was an Orthodox liturgy going on over there and there, there it was, yeah. but that's, yeah. they, they, they do that. And we may look at it and go, this looks like some kind of outdoor market. What's going on? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but, but it works. They understand it and it, it, there is worship going on. Um, yeah, so the the mores in those cases are going to be somewhat different than our own. Um, but morality, uh, morality is the objective standard, and there are going to be objective standards in the societal norms. But societal norms can't obviously create that because we have different societal norms with the same morality behind them. Right. Okay. So let's move on to, uh, I'm looking at some of the notes that you pass along here, mm -hmm. uh, to me, father, and, and we're going to be posting this on the website as well, but we're, we're at this section we're going to call claim one and, yes. and you've titled it moral principles are objective and based on finality. What does that mean? Father? What does that mean? Okay. So we're going to go way back to what father Robinson was doing at the very beginning of this series, just as a little, uh, we, we've taken a few little you know, twists and turns here, but look at what Father Robinson was doing. He was trying to establish the existence of God, and he was trying to do so without going to what well, the Bible says or any revelation. He was looking at reasonable arguments for that. His argument, though, he mainly used, he, he came up with a few others and he mentioned them, but his main one was the argument from contingency. And because that argument from contingency establishes a lot of the attributes of God that we don't need further arguments for. It's, it's a very convenient way of getting sort of a very complex argument that ends up prov providing a very rich idea of God, as he said. Um, but there are other ones. You've probably heard of the first mover argument. There is one from the order of the universe. This is the fifth way of St. Thomas. Okay, Father, how does this have anything to do with morality? Um, give me a second. We'll see this. That fifth way argues that there are non-intelligent beings in the universe a planet, a rock, something like that. And they always act according to the same rules. We'd call those the physical laws and the subject that studies them physics. And what St. Thomas is trying to say is that these physical laws, these things behave according to these physical laws. A plant is always going to orbit around the star. A rock will always fall down the, towards the, the mass of a larger body like the Earth. Gravity always works. Things always act in the same way unless some external force interrupts them. Recall that was what we were talking about in a certain sense in the, in the Miracles episode, too. God doesn't violate these laws. What he does is he works through them and he, his, he works within those laws to change the course of nature, not to violate nature. We, we, that was the, right. a big claim that we had there. And we can only do science because that happens. Okay. That goal or seemingly that goal or that, that idea, the, these things are acting towards, we would call an end a goal or the final cause. And that goal seeking is something that shows order. So some are going to misunderstand this argument. So we should put it here. This isn't the intelligent design argument. That's a fine argument. That's a fairly weak argument. It tries to detect design. This argument here, the fifth way sees an order. And then because there is an order, there has to be a goal and their designs to reach that goal. Everything is designed therefore in a certain way. Those non-intelligent things can't know that goal. So they can't establish their own means to that order. Intelligent beings do that. They see the goal. They orient themselves towards the goal. A non-intelligent thing can't do that. 
So it has to be given that from something that is intelligent, that's creator or its maker, right? The desk that I'm sitting at is for writing, but it was the person who constructed it that gave it that purpose. If he didn't put it together, well, then it wouldn't be a very good surface on which to write. It would be just a bunch of wood. Okay, now let's back up to morality here. Um, We're talking about purpose, Well, there is a purpose in the things that that God created. He gave everything a kind of a particular nature, what it is. And when it acts according to that nature, it does what God wants it to do. And in a certain sense, we can say here, because we are human beings, we share in this human nature, we all are supposed to act in that way. So first, we establish this idea that there there is a nature to things that God created. The very fact that the rock always falls that way establishes that. It has a nature. It always acts that way. Well, it works that way for physical actions, but also for moral actions. Moral actions are only going to work with us because we're rational creatures who can see our end, choose the means towards it, and then pursue it. But a rock can't do that. It just falls. Um, We could say um, here that this is the whole setup for the natural law. If things have a nature, the way they are deeply, God gave them that nature by creation. There is this relationship created between God and man or between God and the creature here. For us, it's it's a it's an ordering towards that end. When we act according to that nature, remember, part of that nature is to have an intellect and a will. When we know, when we love, when we put our passions to use in the right way, when we act according to that nature freely, we're choosing to seek an end and we're acting well. We're acting according to God's law. That's the natural law. And recall before we said it's sort of the internal law engraved on the heart of men. And that's not a wrong concept at all. But it's not the most simple way to look at it from the standpoint of morality. And that's why I wanted to sort of flesh it out and expand here. We can say, deeply speaking, the natural law, like any law, is really a relationship. So um, for those philosophers there, there are the different kinds of um, uh, predicaments that uh, Aristotle talks about and St. Thomas will talk about too. And one of those in there, one of those categories, they would say, is relation. And that requires two things. It's also one of the only, the only things that in God is uh, would be, you know, the relations between the persons. Everything else in God is, is, is shared, but this relation ends up making those distinctions. That's, that's an entirely different apologetic there, I'm sure. But um, this relationship of any kind of law, it works for physical laws too. The relationship between my coffee cup and me and the physical laws that have, that have to happen so I can have a sip of this coffee there, there, is a, there is a relation between that. There is an attraction of gravity as it goes down. That's a relationship as well. And so it's this relationship on a moral level between God and man that is based off of his nature and our nature. And that's what we mean by the natural law. And that's also what we mean by it as it regards its finality, its purpose. That finality and purpose embedded in that natural law ensures we're pointed towards that goal that we're supposed to go towards. And that's when we when we look at the, the fundamental moral principle of do good, avoid evil. You know, that that's how we're supposed to do that. All moral principles are going to be objective and fixed for all men because we have the same nature. 
And that is, that's why it's important to look at that. That's the basis for Catholic Christian morality is that natural law, which really is the relationship between God's nature and who he is and what he is and us and what we are and who we are. And, and it's because of the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God. That's why we share that nature in a sense. Yeah. I don't know if I just said heresy there or not, but. Well, we don't share the nature, <laughs> we'll put it that way. But the image and likeness is our intellect and our yes, will. Yes, right. Yeah. Okay. So we share we share that part, right. Um, we, we Yeah, the divine nature and, and the human nature are very different things. But, yes. but we do share, okay. because we're rational <laughs> creatures, we do share the intellect and will. We share those with the angels, too. And the angelic nature is different from ours, too. So, right. um, but, but because of our nature. Because we are meant to do good, avoid evil, and the nature of man and the nature of God set that relationship, it's also going to set how we're meant to do that. And that's why okay. it's going to be consistent across there, because it's not as if it's not as if we all have different opinions and ideas about things. We have a shared nature. And so those things that we do either will correspond to that nature or they will not. And so they'll okay. either help us to get to that goal or they will not. And if they do, do good. And if they don't avoid evil. Okay. So I guess then to go back to our discussion on morality and, and you, you started to kind of answer this question here in the last few minutes, but why are mm -hmm. we, why are we taking this, this tack of looking at natural law and, you know, the human nature, divine nature, why are we looking at all those things in terms of morality? Well, I, I think the, the fundamental way of uh, having this perspective of finality, as we said, which is the natural law anyway, it's it, what is the nature there? We're supposed to fulfill a, a particular pr purpose. We have a destiny that God has set in our for us because of how he has created us and what he's done. Um, that's established by you know, we, we can establish the existence of God beforehand. We're looking at the reasonableness hereof um, of some of the claims that for for the Catholic teaching. Uh, of things. But ultimately, when we go back to this natural law and our purpose, if we look at morality that way, it, it helps us immensely to break away from a sort of legalistic approach to things, um, to break away from some of those bad and wrong ideas about morality that we'll hopefully talk about in a little bit here. Um, I think one of the first things is, again, it flows from the very nature of man and the very nature of God. And so we don't have to look around for for some way that it applies in certain cases. It, it, it's simply it's a very simple way of looking at things, and it avoids that legalism of a of a do not do list and a do list. Um, that's a very important thing. Um, another reason that it's really important to look at um, sort of a second reason, I guess you could say here um, that we can. That it's important to look at morality from this standpoint of finality or purpose is that it becomes far too easy if we don't look at it that way to confuse the supernatural and the natural. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of people out there, and sometimes those who, um, who will object to the church, sometimes those who will defend her morality, that presume that Catholic morality is simply based on what the Bible says, what scripture says, the traditions of the church, or what the popes, the magisterium has, has sort of helped us to understand from Revelation. And as a result of that, some will argue, for instance, and we go back to the Maori culture and the different mores and things like that here, they'll argue that a tattoo is morally wrong 
Why? Because Leviticus 19.28 says branding the body with marks or designs is bad. You're forbidden, right? Um, on a side note here, of course, there, there are moral aspects to this, and we're not going to answer that question here. I'll leave that for another time. But in a, a, a verse beforehand, it also says, don't tonsure your head. And of course, we, we certainly do that at the seminary and at the monastery. So actually a quick plug. If yeah. you go to sspxpodcast.com, Father Kurtz, one of our very earliest episodes of Questions ah. with Father, I think it was like number five or six. Okay. We did talk about the morality of tattoos. So okay. if people but are interested, it's been answered. It's been answered. There you go. Yep. Okay. But hey, it's in scripture. So you know, some people will object to something like that. They'll say they find a, a verse in scripture, and of course, we can't do that. So therefore, it's it's immoral. As if the the scripture itself, by saying that, establishes that is immoral or moral. And the other extreme would be those people who think that we actually have to create a theology about all kinds of moral things, rather than look at them without even re reference to theology or revelation. Right? In fact, we can natural law. Though we've talked about God here, the natural law is simply is proven philosophically, not not through theology. We were talking about God, but also God's existence is proven by by reason alone. So it's not as if we're having to go. Okay, Scripture says, and the Revelation has told us. Remember, we're on that bridge. We're not through to the the, the part of we're believing these truths because we we have the faith necessarily. Um, and that theology is something like the 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 sexual mores uh, morality of the Catholic Church. We have people who say. Well, we need to develop a theology around that rather than just, you know, use the natural law. And so we have need to have this theology of the body is kind of uh, a modern thing that has to regulate these things and, and ends up making quite a mess of things, unfortunately, by that. But that's an entire another discussion. Um, right. But most important, though, and seemingly controversial points of sexual morality for the Catholic are actually grounded just in the very purposes of the body of marriage and of the of the, the the human being that God has created. We don't have to go outside. We don't have to create a theology. We can look at it simply from the standpoint of the natural law. And then that that clears a lot of things up. It makes it much simpler. It it answers most of our questions. And then those little touchy questions that perhaps are a little less um uh, fit for public discussion, though nowadays it seems everything for, is fit for public consumption. But um, the the things that are a little bit more delicate to talk about, you can answer those questions without having to to be indelicate about those things. You can simply say, right. okay, what's what's this for? And if that's for that, does this reach that end? No. Okay. Well, that must be wrong, right? It, it simplifies the question very much, um, and. The, the danger, too, is if we don't look at it this way and we confuse that supernatural and natural aspect, um, then the supernatural sources of knowledge um, will seem like they're just the official opinion. And then what do people do? I don't like that opinion. And so I have my own different opinion. I don't agree. I don't. The church is just saying those things or it's those stodgy old old white men who don't know anything about, you know, family life and my situation. And, and there are these other situations that they've never thought about. And so they, they can't tell me what I you know, they, they can't answer my moral question. And I only can do that. Right? Now, the, the supernatural source of revelation, they're very important and they will help us to add and enhance our understanding as hopefully we'll get a chance to do. But without the natural law, 
without that finality, they're going to be incomplete, which is why thing like theology of the body makes such a mess of things, right? Um, because grace builds on nature, right? The supernatural builds on the natural, not the other way around, not nature on grace. So we have to look at these things from the standpoint of finality and purpose. As I said, if we don't, we risk the, it's just your opinion type thing. Um, we'll, we'll return to that idea a little bit later and, and flesh it out when we are able to add in a little bit of these sort of more, um, more uh, these considerations that are related to um, revelation, scripture, tradition, things like that. But um, okay. yeah, but for now, I think we can look at other reasons too, why it's important to consider morality from this perspective of finality purpose as well. Okay. And I, I, I would say another reason there would be it. Most Catholic morality isn't about theology or high level sciences it can just be simple, natural reflections on things. We, we have the Ten Commandments, right? The very simple, straightforward law. But those Ten Commandments don't create the morality. They're simply a reflection, they're guideposts for us of what's moral. In fact, every one of the Ten Commandments, with the exception of one, really is just a reiteration of what we should already know. Why don't we know it? Well, original sin kind of clouds our judgment and things like that. So we need to be reminded of them, especially, you know, the, the Israelites needed to be reminded of them a, a lot, right? They, they keep falling into idolatry at various times. So they need to be told, hey, don't file, you know, there's one God and you have to worship him. The only one that it sets any kind of, what we could say, arbitrary standard is there's going to be one day a week on which you worship God in a particular way. That worship is necessary is from the natural law. We, we, we could show that. But that one day should be set aside. That's, that's a decision that God made arbitrarily. But aside from that third commandment, every single one of the other commandments is simply derived from natural law. We don't need them. They're just a reflection and a help for us. They're guideposts. And the church's law, too, the precepts of the church don't create morality. They reflect it. They teach it. They specify certain things where we, are, we aren't sure about the best way of doing something. Um, but they're just reflecting that, that, um, that nature of things. And in a certain sense, too, we don't even need to go to the point of, of, of coming up with theology either when we see that the nature of things requires certain things for goodness or, or badness or evil. Right. Grass needs a certain amount of water, sunlight, air, fertilizer, heat to grow. Right. It's not good for grass to have an extended drought. I remember when I was down in, in Phoenix, uh, some of their solutions to uh, grass and, and, and Phoenix. And one of them is artificial grass. But um, that's not really grass. Right. Um, right. But at the same point in time, go up to Minnesota, where, where I was at the seminary for quite a while, and you have the grass covered with snow, and then it gets all muddy, and it, it, it starts killing off the grass, too, when, when you have too much water, right? Um, so that's not good. Water is good for grass, but not much too much water. Sun is good, but not too much sun, right? And so we can see what helps grass to thrive is good. In a certain sense, looking at man, we can see there are certain things that help us to thrive and those will be good for us. They are morally good even. And there are certain things that don't help us to reach that end. They don't help us to reach our goal, which is a supernatural goal, but they don't help us to reach that. And so, so they're not good. And the, only then the more complex and difficult questions about morality really need 
a theologian or a philosopher to, to start looking at and trying to figure these things out. The simple answers are easy for the simple people. If we just look at who we are, what we are, and whether this thing helps me to reach my goal. Right. Right. It, 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 it is, it, these things do get complex, but at the end of the day, it, they are very simple. If you have, if you have been developing a good conscience, indeed, it's, yeah. it's simply a matter of, is this the right next thing for me to do? Yeah. Yes it, or no. It becomes, it becomes a, an exercise of prudence of the virtue of prudence. That's also another reason why it's, it's, you know, this, this approach, this way of looking at the finality of things also leads to a very natural practice of virtue in the keeping of this moral law, right? So St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa, in the Prima Secundi, so the first part of the second part, so it's the second book um, of his Summa, he begins with law at question 90, right? Very far along through there. Before that, he develops a whole lot of things before getting to the law that commands certain things. He steps through man's purpose in his last end, basically like what we were trying to do there. And he tells us that last end is happiness. That's really important for, for our understanding. What we do is meant to give us happiness, not pleasure, happiness. The, the distinction needs to be made there. The happiness will be an eternal happiness. If that's revealed truth. Um, but that happiness is what we are seeking. We're always trying to seek it. That's why we, when we don't have it, we're always trying to seek all kinds of things to get that. After talking about happiness in our last end, he talks about human acts and how the intellect and the will work in man. And then he discusses men's passions and how they affect his actions. Then he discusses habitual actions, virtues, and vices. And then after that, and only after that, does he get to law. Law is just, as he says, a rule and a measure of acts. It's where man is induced to act in a certain way and restrained from acting in a certain way. In other words, the law ends up then just becoming not the guide, not the rule that he has to follow, but it ends up becoming more a push to help man to do the good thing or a, a restraint to help him to not do evil things. In other words, it's it's just a help. It doesn't create the morality there. And so when we look, even for a Catholic, when you start examining your conscience and things like this, it's not as if I go through the do not do list and the must do list and I see which ones I did of the do not do list and not of the did did do list kind of thing here. And then I write that all up. That's that's not how morality works. It's a it's a useful way sometimes of looking at things, but it's not the law that makes it good or evil. It's not the law that creates it as good or evil. It was good and evil. And this guidepost, this guardrail, as it were, is there to protect us so we, we actually stay on the path correctly. Um, I love, at this point in time, uh, I've, I've broken into a lot of sermons. It was usually what I would come up with in, uh, in class of the analogy here for our moral life of driving a car. Because okay. that's uh, that, that we many of us have an experience of driving a car. And if you're in Kansas City, as I am now, you also get to see plenty of experiences of people who really don't know how to drive a car. Either. <laughs> yep. There's a Dom Molinier in his uh, Courage to be Afraid talks about prudence and, um, and Christian prudence. And one of the things that he ends up talking about in there, I, I read to uh, some of the boys at a retreat recently that I preached. And um, he, he talks about a man that he met who uh, a few minutes later would be dead in a car crash. And, but he, and he says, he, 
he, he was talking about Christian prudence at the time. And he says, Christian prudence isn't just for avoiding accidents, although it would be nice if people and Christians used it more for avoiding accidents. It's, it's more for living an entire life. <laughs> um, so yeah, the analogy of driving a car here. Um, so as we're going down this road, we're going to picture this, this analogy of the car and the driving. There is a goal ahead, right? You put it in the GPS as it were, and that is our eternal happiness. We're, we're trying to get to that goal. It's not just Buffalo, it's eternal happiness, okay. Um, the car is our vehicle for getting there, the road, the path on which we're going, right? But the end point's happiness. So the final cause is the happiness, it's our purpose. And when we keep our eyes on what we're supposed to be doing, we will drive well. It's when we become distracted and, and we start swerving all over the place, we don't, we don't get that exit, we don't turn off that way, we, we get stuck. Right. It's when we lose focus on the purpose of things. So that I, that idea of finality really, really plays into this here. But also the law itself is the guardrail. It's useful to have to have some guardrails because every once in a while when you're not paying attention or you become distracted or somebody swerves into your lane, that might be the thing that saves you from the cliff. Right. The cliff being for, we could say, mortal sin, a loss of, of the life of God. Um, but no one would say that good driving is hugging the guardrail the entire time, sparks flying as you're going 60 with, you know, metal on metal there. That's not driving. Okay. Maybe right. you're getting down the road, but that's not driving. And that's why the law itself isn't the thing that sets the, the, the morality. It simply, it, we're not supposed to hit the guardrail or, or, you know, come up against the law at all. It's supposed to give us a, a, a little buffer and a barrier from, from the terrible thing that we could run off the, the cliff towards. It's supposed to help us to remind us actually to stay in the lane. And the lane markers are, you could say, the, the small little laws or, or the, the councils, as it were. No one would say that driving against the guardrails is good. Just keeping the law, that's good. That's a good moral life. Um, in fact, that alone risks damaging a car, right? If you just keep the law and you don't keep the spirit thereof, if you don't see that there is something higher, a purpose for you, then you'll break the car and it may have to walk and it will make the goal that much more difficult to get to. This is the image of venial sin, which we'll talk about later. But the best way to drive is just stay on the road, focus on the goal and, and, and pay attention well away from right. the law, the guardrail there. And a good driver is one who does that with ease, joyfully and promptly and corrects errors. You can see a good driver just they, they, they can be so at ease behind the wheel. It's like they can hold a conversation and do this and that, the other thing. And they just it's natural. And in a certain sense, that's exactly what virtue does. So this is what we mean, like this idea of looking at the finality, the goal, not the law is an inducement to virtue. It helps to build a good way of living our life, of driving towards our goal. The law is an encouragement to avoid evil. And so habitual actions will flow from that first by just keeping the law and then in perfect ways being better than it. And then more perfect ways, just focusing on, on the lane that we are supposed to be in. And that helps order our passions and our and towards that goal. And it really helps us to reach happiness, constantly, consistently evaluate things in the light of, of the moral law. And it, that avoids the legalism and that sort of list of rules mentality. Got it. It's um, I'm, I'm also kind of reminded of, of the way that the, the that the Bible was um, how, how the inerrant books of the Bible were decided upon. It wasn't that the church said, 
hey, these are the books that are that should be part of of scripture. Therefore, that makes them infallible. The church mm-hmm. said, these are the ones that are infallible. And we are saying, yes, these are the ones. It's the church didn't cause them to be infallible. They already were. The church just identified them. It's the same sort right. of thing here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We, we build up a morality and it becomes much, much more rich that way when we build it up from the idea that the natural law, our goal sets the purpose of things. And as a result of that, we are meant to act a certain way. And the law is there. Yes, the church is dictates on certain things, answering certain moral questions is there simply to guide us and protect us from from falling off, just like the Ten Commandments were. Certain ways, the Jews themselves, the Israelites were weak. And as a result of that, they had to be given these these helps. Well, the moral law is just that for us. And the dictates of the church and the the scriptures telling us certain things, that's exactly it. It's it's there to help us to to stay on the road. I would say also, um, there, there's there's something important here that we the last little sort of good reason for thinking it this way. Um, this approach to finality is exactly matched up with, and now we're getting into a little revelation, a little bit of the Christian side of things, but hopefully maybe some of the people who followed us along this whole apologetic series are more seriously thinking about the Christian faith or Catholics and trying to help their own faith too. Um, God has revealed his desire for our life and purpose. He tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ himself says, I now, lo- I now no longer call you servants. I call you friends. We hear it at our ordination, but it's not just the priest. It's all of us. This, this is this true friendship is what he's calling us to. And that is a relationship that is, that is uh, in fact, the, the most important thing in our life. Um, and if morality is about this friendship with God, again, it becomes easy. It pushes us towards virtue. We don't want to offend our friend. We want to actually not just not offend the friend. We want to please the friend. We want to do things that we want to do acts of service. We want to go out of our way. Um, and the goal in friendship is a love of the other and the good of the other. And of course, God loves us and wants our good. But it's not just a one-way relationship, right? It's, it's a mutual sharing. And in fact, that's what we're meant to have. That's our final goal. That is our happiness. And it's exactly why, going back to St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa, his first analogy for the the life of God in us, this charity, this love that God gives us is friendship, which is, I think, something that we we oftentimes have to be reminded of. It it sounds maybe a little bit modern to say God wants us to be his friend, but it's because he loves us. He wants us to share in this mutual love and not not just have this this servile fear of him, but to have a filial fear of him as well. Now, again, that's introducing revelation into this, but I think it also gives perhaps a, a little reason to, to, to see that the, the Catholic approach to this is not legalistic at all. It, it's meant right. to be, it's meant to be something that is, that is done out of love. It's meant to be something right. that it, that pushes us and motivates us, not that restrains us. It's it's a positive thing, morality. It it's an encouragement. It's it's not this these shackles that are meant to keep us away from having our fun or from happiness. It's meant to produce happiness, in fact. Right, and and I may have the Latin phrase wrong, but what what is it? Uh, Deus delexitnos. God has loved us first. Yeah, and and all we have to do is just accept the fact that He is loving us. Indeed, and and that's something that as Catholics sometimes we have a hard time with because, like you said, it it does sound modernist or it does sound Protestant, and 
you know, th- that's a darn shame because that's the core tenant of the Catholic faith is that yeah. phrase right there. What's the, what's the prayer that our Lord came to teach us? Our father, right? Um, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I, it was a recent sermon that I, I, I mentioned it, but, um, in a certain sense, I think this is Don Molinier as well. He says that the Old Testament was really a, a, a centuries-long lover's quarrel over the um, over the love of God for his people. And it was just yeah. back and forth and back and forth. And finally, our Lord perfects it, of course, too. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's a very hopeful way of looking at it, too. This morality, even when we have difficulty keeping it because of, of, of the sins and the faults that we have, it's not impossible. Why is it not impossible? Because our nature tends us tends to put us towards this. We have wounds. That's what grace is for, to help fix those wounds. And it makes it possible. Again, that, that starts involving um, certain aspects of, of revelation into that. But it, I think, makes a lot of reasonable sense that that would be how a good and loving God sets this thing up, not as an emperor for us to stand pins and needles facing him uh, on not, not ready to move the wrong way or anything like that, but, but inviting us like a father, inviting us right. to, to grow up, to, to mature with his help. And sometimes allowing us to make some mistakes, burn our hand on the stoves. So we learn. So we, mm-hmm. we have a little humility, we grow, but that, that's, that's the vision we want to create with this, this purpose, this idea of finality. We have this goal to get to. This goal is union with God, um, a union in uh, mind and heart with God uh, for all eternity, yeah. an eternal happiness. And how do we get there? That's that's the question. How do we get there? It's through everything that we do and making sure that those things are all oriented towards that goal. And so we're not hugging the guardrail. We're not going off the cliff. In fact, we're we're trying to focus on staying in our lane and, and making sure we we keep the directions that that are being given to us. Yeah. Up to this point, we've been talking about how morality is based on on natural law, but uh, you're going to argue that it's not necessarily natural law, but divine law and how those two are related. Right. So it's just sort of a, a brief point I would I'd probably want to make here is that natural law really isn't anything other than the eternal law of God, the divine law, but it's the divine law for us. Um we're saying natural law. It's a bit sp- too specific, I guess you could say, because we, if we back out a bit, we can see, as I said before, the third commandment. Certain things are positively chosen by God, and they don't correspond necessarily to our nature. They're, they're sort of outside of our nature. We need to worship God. That's that's part of the natural law. He He's their creator. We have to worship him. If we think about it enough, we will find out that we have to worship him. We have to have a worship that is a kind of sacrifice. We have to sacrifice in, in a proper sense to God. We have to have some kind of priesthood of, of some kind and a liturgy. That's the natural law that can establish that. But exactly what that looks like and how it's supposed to happen and when it's supposed to happen, those are things that either God has to tell us and reveal to us, or we have to just create them ourselves. Um, and he has revealed them to us through the mass and through the sacrifice of the Old Testament, of course, too. But mass in particular, which is that presentation once again of the, the sacrifice of our Lord on, on the cross at Calvary. Um, but that's a, that's what we call divine positive law. This is where God is making an arbitrary choice to say, this is how you will do this thing. Natural law, of course, tells you you must do something. But you have to do this thing here. You have to worship me on this day. You have to worship me in this manner. You have to do it this way. 
And that doesn't say our nature doesn't say we have to do it that way. So this is where the divine law sort of has to expand if our or our concept of morality has to expand to say it's the divine law, not just the the natural law here. The natural law is a most important part of it. But there are going to be those certain things that God reveals to us. Again, we're now we're talking in Revelation. God reveals to us we have to do these kinds of things. Sure. Continuing on for a second with that third commandment, that was the Sabbath, right? Saturday. And then it was mm-hmm. God himself who decided through the apostles and the church that it would now be to celebrate our Lord's resurrection the, on the Dies Domini, the Lord's Day, which is where we get the Latin and, and Spanish and other other language, uh, romance language name of Dominica for that day. Dies Domini, Dominica, that day, that Sunday. Um, those are examples. There's plenty of other things that God has arbitrarily chosen, um, but then he will reveal those kinds of things. But the natural law, he doesn't have to reveal. Thankfully, he's a good father. And since we screwed it up quite badly, thanks to original sin, he tells us certain things like the Ten Commandments. He reveals even parts of the law that we should be able to figure out because we don't figure them out. Um, But that's not necessary. So this is what I mean by saying we have to kind of back out a bit and expand our idea to say it's part of the divine law as well. Sure. Speaking of, of humans screwing things up, we have a very yeah. good way of, of also taking morality and just twisting it to make it fit one, one thing or another. Yeah. Um, and we do. And the next thing I think we're going to be talking about is, is these incorrect notions of morality. Some of mm-hmm. these things I'm, I'm looking ahead a little bit. Some of these things we have talked about in the crisis series yeah. uh, for someone who's watched every single one of those as well, you're going to know this stuff, but can we go through some of these incorrect notions of morality, Father? Sure, and I, and I didn't want to. I don't want to spend too long on them because it, you know we want to build up an I, a correct idea of morality, not necessarily just take pot shots at those people who got it wrong. Um, but subjectivism, I would say, the first one right here. This one would argue there's no fixed standard of morality. It's left to the judgment of each individual. It's my truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Um, okay, little critique here. If there's no fixed standard for morality remember morality is about human actions, right? Then there's no standard for any natural action whatsoever. Um, If there's no standard for any natural action, then we would have to admit that there's no standard for anything of nature. We can't really know anything. If there's no standards, then things like scientific research is impossible, right? Um, Yeah. So things like scientific research would become more or less impossible. There's no standard for these things, right? the theory also just results in practical chaos, right? If every man is set to allow his own standard for what is right, there would be no evil in murdering your neighbor to take his goods. Or, you know, you could just say, ah, because I felt like it. Right. Um, I remember one, one priest uh, talking about objective truth and uh, he was saying something along the lines of, well, you know, if somebody tells you there's no objective truth, you should punch him in the face and take his wallet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did I, did I punch him in the face? No, no, no. I didn't punch him in the face. How do you know that? You can't know anything, right? Um, Right. So subjectivism just gets us to the point where there, there, there is no truth whatsoever. And so to say my truth and your truth, not only is, is meaningless, the idea that there could be any truth or we could do anything or think anything is, is meaningless at that point in time. Um, Similar to this would be a second error, relativism. They say, okay, there's a standard for morality. We're okay with that idea, but it exists only in relation to some larger group or like a society that decides what's good and evil. Okay. 
That avoids the first kind of critique there of a lack of a standard. It permits some kind of order, but the order is changeable according to the whims of a mob. And so there really isn't any order whatsoever anyway. Murder could be made legal and then illegal or other evils allowed and then not allowed. It basically turns into a kind of legalism or a chaos where because we decided this is illegal, now it's bad, but now it's legal. Okay, it's good. I think we could get into that. I know you had a large, a long podcast on the, the whole question of marijuana, where that's becoming more legal, legalized in places. Well, yeah. it, it's, it, it, our, our moral judgment of it is still the same, whether it's legal or it's not. The law doesn't change whether it's moral or not. It isn't. Um, it isn't. Um, of course, we could talk about medicine, things like that, too. That's a different question. But in, right. in, in right. large part, it's not moral, d- despite what the law says. Right. Just like the law, the law. Um, oh, in, in Missouri here, the, the law for, um, you know, uh, laws on, on alcohol are are a lot less strict because we have Anheuser-Busch in the in uh-huh. across the state in St. Louis. So, for yeah. instance, there are no open container laws in most of the uh, most of the um of the state. It doesn't make it moral for you to be having a party in the back of your uh, back of your van as you're driving somewhere else through the state. It, it, it's not right. moral. You can't do that. It's not good. Um, just because the law doesn't forbid it doesn't make it okay. Now, if they, sure. they passed a law that made it illegal, it would still be bad and whether it was legal or not. So mm-hmm. yeah, that that's a kind of relativism there and, and a critique thereof. We okay. have utilitarianism, right? The standard morality is just whatever is most useful for man or society. It's no relation to the truth whatsoever. It's just, this is in a certain sense, um, uh, Machiavellianism, as it were, right? Uh If it's good for me, it's good for the state, it's good for these other things, well, then it's good, right? Whether there's no truth whatsoever. Um, It's no different than subjectivism. It's the same critique. Um, It attempts to set a standard of what is good or useful, but then that's subject to all manner of interpretation. It ends the same way as subjectivism. There is nominalism. So that's more of a way of looking at nature than a, a, a moral error, we would say, although it's wrong. Um, this The idea here is God has, so a, a nominalist would reject the nature of things. Things don't have a nature. We just, we associate them together because they look similar. We, we identify certain characteristics of them. So we name them nominalism. We name them the same thing. And because there's no nature, well, it's just arbitrary decrees of God or or something like that that establishes what's moral and what's not. God decided murder will be, would be illegal, but he could have decided in, instead that murder was fine, right? He could create a world in which murder was okay. But despite the fact that this view is held by some Catholics, um, so the Scotist particularly, um, this idea destroys that the, the thought that God is a loving father, it's just his arbitrary will that just determines things. This would be like the dictatorial mm-hmm. father in the household who isn't trying to encourage virtue and, and good living, but saying, I want this. I want that. No, you can't do that. Okay, you can do that, right? It just would change his mind on a whim. This isn't the loving father that is revealed in scripture to us. Um, and there is a, this is a conclusion flowing from nominalism. The larger school of thought, we can see that it's, it's not going the right way because many of its proponents ended up in heresy and, and, uh, and apostasy afterward. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's a non-starter there. And I would say there's yeah. one more that we should probably critique here. Um, I'm not sure I've included that in the version of the notes that you have there, but I'll, I'll pass along one other that I thought of right before here. And that would be consequentialism or proportionalism. Uh-huh. 
Okay. And act is good or not. It, this is, we will say this is sort of like a few of the others, but this is one we, we probably want to pull out specifically. An act is good or not, depending on the consequences that result from it. And the proportional part of this would say, if the bad consequences outweigh the good, you can't do it. It's immoral. If the good outweighs the bad, you can do it. It's moral. Uh, there is a degree of proportionalism we can, we'll probably talk about at some point here on what we would say is the indirect voluntary or double effect. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's a more complicated thing. We'll have to spend some time on that in the future. Um, but the critique here of consequentialism is any serious moral system is going to consider the effects of an action course, right? We have to see whether it orients us towards our goals, we said. So we have to see consequences there. But the goodness of an eat or of an action isn't a matter of proportion. There are acts that certain acts, intrinsically evil acts that that are evil no matter what. You can't murder your parents to get the inheritance, right? No matter if the inheritance is big and you need it and it would help your family and they're old anyway and they're going to die pretty soon, you can't take their money so you can survive off of that and kill them as a result. It's intrinsically evil. No matter that there is good that flows from it and maybe the good is in your mind more proportionate than than they're living for a little bit longer. Uh, You can't do that. And so we have this problem of the intrinsically evil um, running into this here. I think that's probably one of the biggest of the objections that we could have to this system. Ultimately, though, it's kind of subjectivism. Who determines what is more or less useful here? Who determines whether this is good or the consequences are good or bad? We're running into that problem in this here. So it's just another kind of subjectivism as well. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's not going to – it has to have some sort of a basis in in a logic. Otherwise, it's, it's just going to be completely arbitrary and, and what works – it's – like you said, it is related to subjectivism in that way. Yeah. So those are the incorrect notions of morality. As we kind of wrap up this kind of first first section, and, and, and this was all going to be one longer episode. I think we're going to break it up into two as we're looking at the time here. Let's mm-hmm. end this episode by just briefly looking at some of the correct notions of morality, and then we'll get into the principles of it and some specifics. Sounds like a plan. Um, okay. So the... Remember, we, we started with the correct notion, obviously, being this idea of finality, the natural law, right? The, this, this guide towards our ultimate goal and looking at the goal and determining what we should do in relation to getting to that goal. Um, so the ultimate objective standard is this eternal law of God that we said. It consists of the natural law and those free choices that God has made, the divine positive law. Now, that's the remote standard, we could say. That's the standard that's further away, but we need a standard that's closer to us. And that's going to be our reason. We have to use our reason. We have to use our will to get to the, the, or to conform our actions to that standard. And that is the objective standard. The proximate, the near to me standard is using my right reason. And we emphasize right reason. This is the reason, this is, we'll say later, part of our, our conscience involved is involved in this. But we have to have one that's formed by these laws. The, the, the more proximate law of my reason and thinking as guide, as a prudence towards my actions, actually has to be in line with the more remote one. Now, there's going to be a subjective standard because we have to apply this, right? We have to apply this, and that's going to be the conscience, 
right? And we'll talk in detail, I guess, in the next episode here, or the first and a half episode that we were, we were thinking of doing um, about the conscience. Um, we, that there's a lot to talk about there, um, but that subjective standard for us is the conscience. It has to be formed rightly. And then that sets up for, you could say, a threefold kind of morality, right? Things are either going to be good, they're going to be indifferent, or they're going to be downright evil. If they're okay. good, they're going to be conformed to the standard of morality, conformed to the eternal law. And another way of saying this, the natural law, or they will help lead towards our goal. The indifferent acts or the indifferent things will be only in the abstract, right? They will never exist outside of theory. Um, we'll explain that in a second here. But they're indifferent because they, they don't show conformity towards that law, nor do they show some lack of conformity to that law. Whereas evil things are those things which are not in conformity with that law. They're not going to be in conformity with the law or with our application of it to ourselves, which is through that conscience. Now, I said for a minute or a minute ago there, indifferent acts exist only in theory. Why? Once you do something, once you act, there is all there's going to be some purpose or intention in doing that. You, you will always you will always add something to that, your purpose or intention, and that will either make it good or evil. Right. It will never still be indifferent. So we can talk about indifferent acts in, in theory, right? Shooting a mm -hmm. gun is an indifferent act. But when you shoot it to try to kill the deer, that's probably a good thing unless it's out of season. Um, when you try to shoot it, a person or if you're, you know, a former vice president and you don't shoot so well, maybe you shoot person <laughs> and, and trying to shoot the deer. In any case, when you do these things, right, um, you're you're not acting well. So you're acting evilly. Right? So you either act good or evil because your intention is there. It one, at least your intention ends up being there. So these acts are no longer indifferent. Some people will try to argue with morality that there are these kinds of indifferent acts that are, remain indifferent. Now, once you choose, once your will gets involved in these things, they are no longer indifferent. They're one way or the other. Sure. Uh, walking. Indi immorally indifferent action to go out for a walk. If you go to a bad place with that walk, you're going to you know a, a particularly bad place down the street. It's bad to go walking. If you're going mm -hmm. to the park to to have some get some nice recreation, take a little breather. It's at your recreation time. It's good. That's a good act, right? And so yeah. these these correct notions of morality flowing from the natural law are are, um, are are really opposed to those other ones. There are standards, objective ones, but there's also that subjective element too. A very important thing too. It's not just objective. We apply it subjectively too. So okay. All right. Well, Father, this is great. Like I said, we're going to wrap up here. Um, but next episode, again, the second half of this episode, we're going to be uh, getting into what every high schooler loves to do with every religion teacher. And that is a lot of hypotheticals. Uh, we're going get to get into a lot of examples. So that's fine. I've, as a high school religion teacher for a number of years, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I am prepared. How far down the rabbit hole can we get, Father, today so we don't have homework? We'll see. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Father, thanks so much for your time. We'll talk to you next time. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.